everyone, and a very happy World Manta Day to you all. Sir David Attenborough, you might have heard of him, once said, Wildlife cameramen don't come much more special than Doug Allen. So, as it's World Manta Day, and as Doug is also a patron for the Manta Trust, who better for me to have a little festive talk to than Attenborough's favourite cameraman? But before that, as it's World Manta Day, I reached out to longtime friend of the podcast, live from Canada via Zoom, Dr Guy Stevens. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This is Trees of Crowd and this is our World Manta Day special. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. So many people will hopefully recognise your voice from the episode I recorded back in May of 2019. You are the CEO and co-founder of the Manta Trust. And this is the inaugural World Manta Day. And so we're sort of touching base again to sort of see what's happened, I guess, in the last year and a bit. So I guess the big question is, how are the manta rays doing? Yeah, big question indeed. And and really, the short answer is, I don't really know. Um, you know, <laughs> this is gripping it's crazy. stuff, guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to think that it's been what a year and a half or so, a year plus since we spoke. And mm. obviously, the world has changed for everyone in that time. And one of the biggest impacts to myself and all of my team all around the world is is the restrictions of COVID have meant that it's very difficult to get into the field to uh, to monitor the manta rays. Um, some locations are easier than others, but if we take the Maldives as an example, I know a destination you've been and, and seen some of the mantas that we researched there with my colleagues. You know, we went from having 15 or so staff in the field every day throughout the country to now being down to basically one, occasionally being able to get out for the last three and a half months, zero people were able to get in the water, but slowly we're starting to, to get back out a little bit. But, you know, the end result has been a big hole in our knowledge of what the animals have been doing during this period of COVID. Do you have a hypothesis? I mean, is there uh, perhaps the joy of mantis thriving without all of that human interaction? Or do you think the lack of human observation has meant that slightly more dubious humans have been out there harvesting the mantis for their gills, etc.? Yeah, good question. I, I suspect the answer is probably a bit of both, depending on the location. Um, for the Maldives, where they are protected, their scene is very much a positive um, resource for the for the tourism economy. They're not fished; they're unlikely to be fished, and so the probably actually the the breather from tourism activities is is benefited the population. And this is something that we're very keen to try and investigate when the team are back in the ocean on a regular basis to just you know, see if there has been a, a change in the behavior to their key aggregation sites where pressures from tourism definitely have a negative impact on them. So I suspect the more these possibly positive, we'll have to wait and see. Um, and in other areas where the absence of kind of conservationist researchers and, and you know, enforcement um, personnel on site to, you know, enforce protections, there's probably been increased fisheries. And that's a big concern, obviously, in, in those areas. And, and that we really don't have the answer to, to that, that question at the moment. So other than hopefully getting back in the water soon, what are the Manta Trust up to right now? So we've, uh, we've been uh, very busy. I've spent a lot of time uh, writing up uh, long overdue publications. So there's an awful lot of, of desk-based work going on to put out important scientific um, literature in the, in the peer-reviewed journals. 
Uh, we've also focused a lot on online uh, educational programs, so switch from getting out into local communities uh, where obviously the restrictions are, are making that very difficult to putting out in educational platforms uh, online. So we've done an awful lot of, of webinars. Uh, you can go onto our website and, and go to the webinars um, resource page and see the whole series of 20 or 30 or so webinars that we, we put on, which have been really popular. Uh, we created a whole um, sort of educational resource pack for, for younger children on our website as well. So yeah, we've been really busy. Um, we've been engaging people online more than ever before and it's you know it's been very positive how can people get involved this world band today from home is there anything particular that you want people to get up and do i think really i mean this is that as you said the first year we're doing this um it's really a, a, an initiative that i want anyone and everyone to get involved in um it's about spreading the word sharing your stories of experiences with manta rays you know contacting any particular organizations who are involved in manta ray research, but not just manta rays, but the oceans in, in your part of the world, um, organizations outside the manta trust as well, of course. And, you know, for example, if you've been diving anywhere in the past and you've seen manta rays, you might have a, a load of images stuck on your hard drive from, you know, 10 years ago, dig them out, submit them to the researchers and find out the individuals you saw. And, you know, that's something you can all do from home. Maybe you'll have found a new one and be able to get to name it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can be involved in the research and we'll we'll make sure we feed back anything we find out from your submissions. So, yeah, there's lots you can do from home, um, but it's, it's really about raising awareness, spreading the word and engaging people in oceans and ocean conservation. And, you know, every year we'll try and build on the previous year's uh, World uh, Manta Day and, you know, we'll see see where it goes. Um, yeah, one of the things that you've arranged for World Man today is for me to talk to one of the Manta Trust's ambassadors and patrons. Um, could you tell me who he is and why he's amazing and why you've chosen him to be one of the people uh, taking your movement forward? Yes, Doug Allen. Uh, I mean, I've known Doug uh, about 10 years now. I think we first met on a, a film shoot in the Maldives. He was part of a, a production for a BBC series. I think it was called uh, Monsoons, um, you know, maybe not 10 years ago, but certainly a uh, what seems like a lifetime ago. Um, so we spent three weeks um, diving around uh, in the Maldives. I was his sort of safety diver slash, you know, scientific kind of expert to help him find the mantas. And, you know, it was great hanging out with him. He's he's just extremely fascinating um, man. He's he's obviously done a huge amount of amazing things in his, his career of diving with pretty much anything you can think of. So it was a pleasure to, to dive with him, to learn from him and to get to know him. And he, he was very generous with his time. and I enjoyed his company. And, and since then, you know, I sort of asked him if he would like to, you know, to become a, a patron of the Manta Trust. And he very kindly agreed. And, and yeah, we've just kind of kept in touch since then. And he, you know, as part of his role as a patron, he's willing to help champion the cause of manta rays. And um, I'm sure, you know, when you speak to, to Doug, you will, he'll regale you with some really entertaining and, and fascinating encounters with, with these uh, amazing animals. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Guy. Hopefully I'll see you in the Maldives in 2021 and we can get back in the water and see how the manta's doing. Well, thank you very much, David. Um, great to talk to you as always. And uh, yeah, let's hope that um, the next time we meet, it'll be uh, in the presence of some manta rays. As guys already said a few things about you, I'm going to give you the very quickest of introductions, but the truth is most listeners to this podcast will already have seen footage that you filmed, even if they don't know who you are yet. 
You trained as a marine biologist at Stirling University. As an adventurer and naturalist, you worked for over a decade with the British Antarctic Survey. You've won five BAFTAs, four Emmys, and a whole host of other awards. Uh, Actually, it's eight Emmys. Is it eight? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a story about that later on. So you can tell story. me now. Why, 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 how? Not why, but like... Well, eight, you know... I've won, I think, three or four individually, but I've been As a member part of the, of the camera crew for for another number of. I haven't seen them bits. like in your toilet or on your mantelpiece. No, I don't tend to to do it like that. In fact, I, I may as well tell you the story okay, now because you said to me. Um, a few months ago, I was um, awakened at five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday with the phone ringing, so I picked it up, and um, it was even in Somerset Police on the phone. <laughs> And he said, have you been burgled last night? And I live in a small, modest flat on the top floor. Um, and I looked around and I said, no, I haven't been burgled, not at all. And then I suddenly thought, ah, the garage, you know, which is outside the separate block. So still with the police on the phone, I walked around the back and sure enough, the door half open, jemmied, etc. And I said, you know, you're dead right. I was burgled last night. It was, you know, somebody's been into my garage. And they said, yes, well, um, yeah. And I said, well, this, I'm amazed because here you are telling me at five o'clock in the morning that someone robbed me before I was even aware of it. That's mm-hmm. really impressive. I said, how did you know? And he said, well, we stopped a car at about half past two this morning. Um, we were looking for it anyway, but we stopped it with the ANPR, the national, you know, the number plate recognition. We started to be looking at in the back and it was pretty obvious they had stuff in there which didn't belong to the driver. And one of the things they had was an Emmy and it had your name on it. <laughs> so we decided to Google you and here you are, we found you in Bristol. And I said, well, that's, that's amazing, he said. Um, I said, but um, the policeman said, but I've got a question to you. Why do you keep an Emmy in the garage? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I've, I, to be honest, I've got too many to keep them all inside. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a laugh about that. But there you are, that's, that's why you should keep one of your Emmys in the garage. Well, if, if I'm ever lucky enough to win one, I will certainly hide it so it can be stolen and then I could have a, a, a sly brag to the constabulary when they bring it back. Um, so yes, you've won five BAFTAs between four and eight Emmys, possibly more, who knows, um, and a whole host of other awards for the working on shows like The Blue Planet, Planet Earth, Frozen Planet, and David Attenborough has described you as one of the world's greatest natural history cameramen. So, Doug Allen, this is your life. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> welcome to Trees a Crowd. Thank you. Um, right, we'll kick off, because this is World Manta Day, um, with um, mantas. Why, why are you a patron for the Manta Trust? Well, I've, I filmed Guy um, out in the Maldives for a series with Chris Packham. I think it was about animal intelligence. Anyway, we went to the Maldives and did a sequence on mantas and did a little piece with Guy and he and I just hit it off. And so I think he, when he, when he was looking for you know support for the Manta Trust, he came to me and asked if I would, would do that. And I said, yes, be my honour, of course. So it's been my privilege to be, to be a patron ever since. And I mean, I think, I think it's a wonderful organisation. Mm-hmm. You know, mantas need to be protected. Mantas, whale sharks, you know, the big guys, they need to be protected. And my own history of mantas, you know, goes way back to when I first went to the Red Sea. So the Red Sea was your first manta? The Red Sea was my first manta, yeah. Wow. When I, well, when I finished graduating... Were you planning to see one? No, not really. This is the whole point. When I 
when I graduated, I sort of decided through my degree that I didn't want to be a, a real scientist, but I did want to stay involved with biological expeditions, so to speak, where I could mix my diving experience with my experience as a scientist, let's say. So when I graduated, I wrote around for several places to see if there were opportunities. And one of the, I read an article in a dive magazine about this group of scientists who were out in the Red Sea from Cambridge University. And uh, they were studying crown of thorns starfish, which back in the, we're talking about 1974 now, mm -hmm. and the crown of thorns was a big problem on the Great Barrier Reef. There was a sort of plague of, of crown of thorns. So these biologists had discovered a naturally occurring population of crown of thorns in the Red Sea. So they were out there studying it. So I said, can I come out and, and give you a hand? And they said, yeah, sure, if you, if you can raise the funds, we can't really pay for you, but if you can raise the funds to come out here, Sure, you can help us if you want. So I went out there and I met friend, one of my best friends out there was a guy called Pete Vine, who lives only about 10 miles from where I'm talking to you just now. Anyway, Pete, when we were out there, Pete was, uh, he and I did a lot of diving together. He was collecting, uh, he was interested in a small calcareous worm called Spiror Spirorbis. Okay. And we dived ever deeper and we got to know each other really well. And Pete came to me one day, he says, have you, have you read this book by Hans Haas? And Hans Haas was, Hans Haas and Cousteau were two of the early people who went to the Red Sea. Sure. And they both wrote books about it. And Hans Haas, in his book, he mentioned this place, which he called Meshrifa, where he had found mantas. So Pete said, how about, let's find out where Meshrifa is and, you know, maybe we can go see them. So we found it was a small island about about 35, 40 miles north of Port Sudan. And when we spoke to um, fishermen who went up that way, they said, oh yeah, you mount us quite often up there in this channel. So Pete and I mounted a very small expedition with his Zodiac, put enough stuff together for four or five days and then headed up the coast and camped on Mesherifa, which is really nothing more than a glorified sand spit. But sure enough, the next morning, went out to just the same channel between the reefs that Hans Haas had described and there we could see the little wingtips of the mantas mm. as they cruised up and down the channel. Is it a feeding so, station or a breeding area? It was a, I think it was largely a feeding station. Okay. They, were most, they were most common in the afternoon because in the, in the Red Sea the wind gets up in the afternoon. It tends to, the direction of the wind is such that it pushes the water off the top of the shallow reefs into the deeper channel. And so you get a bit of, I think, plankton bloom, extra special feeding at that point. Sure. So the mantas would come in in the afternoon, they'd cruise up and down this channel, they'd come up and then they'd get so far, turn themselves around and go back. So they're doing big cruising by with their, with their mouth open and that sort of thing. Are we talking so, big oceanic mantas or yeah, the smaller the, reef ones? Um, they, they were pretty big. They were about maybe, you know, five metre wingspan, uh -huh. that kind of thing. Um, you got to remember that all my diving prior to that point had been in Scotland, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe a little bit in the Mediterranean, but Scotland, fairly poor visibility, cold, etc., etc. Out here, visibility, 40 metres, and, and to be in the water with these big, charismatic animals was just incredibly exciting. And to have that reef to ourselves, just mm -hmm. Pete and I, and so we were there for about four or five days and it was definitely one of the, the best times I've had as a diver because it was 
what I realised as we were there that not only could I recognise individual mantas because mantas, if you get a look at their underside, mm. they've got you know spots that are unique to that manta, but also the manta got to know us. So the mantas on the first day were, you know, you had to keep your distance, but by after three or four days, by behaving ourselves, not trying to touch them, just generally, the mantas were accustomed to us. Sure. And they could probably recognise us. So they were coming much, much closer. And usually they duck down a little bit and they'd come right over your head. And it was just, as I say, it had all the elements of an adventure. Yeah. You know, two of us somewhere 40 miles up the coast, fairly remote, and, and just having this channel where the animals were sufficiently predictable that we could go there in the afternoon and just enjoy them, a pair of us. It was magic. Um, just I learned so much about big fish mm-hmm. in that time. I also realised, as I say, it was big. Somehow we don't think about fish as, as recognising people, in a way. Yeah. But if you give yourself the time in their company... You'll get to know them, and they'll get to know, and you you know that they're all different characters too. Some of them were, you know, still weary at the end of two or three, the end of three or four days. Others, they really got their confidence, and they were, you know, coming to you. You've dropped in a lot of little hints there, like the eagle-eyed or eagle-eared amongst people will have worked out that you're Scottish. Um, I practice every night. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so you, you mentioned there that you went to university in Scotland. You also mentioned that you di- dived a lot when you were in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does all this come from? Let's take you all the way back. Like, um, are you from an underwater family? Like, <laughs> what, what is this? Where does, where does um, this start? Well, I think, <laughs> without getting too much into the psyche, I think part of it comes from being a twin. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a twin brother, and we were quite competitive when we were young. The thing with twins is that they, they grow up and have the same, very same experiences, but you, you each have a different interpretation on it. So we both played rugby and cricket and various things like that, but um, Ron was <laughs> somehow just better at me than, than a lot of this <laughs> stuff. You know, he was also possibly more responsible. I was kind of acting the fool all the time. Anyway, diving became something, it was a sport, but it was a non-competitive sport. Sure. And at the same time, if you are if you want to be a good diver, you need to have an intuitive feel for being in the water. Mm-hmm. And the other lucky thing was that um, we were fortunate as a family to take advantage of some of the early package holidays out to Spain. My father was a, a freelance photographer, stills photographer, and later a movie maker. Um, not into wildlife, but you know, had a very successful business in Fife. So we were able to go as a family to the Mediterranean, and if you ever want to learn how to dive or snorkel, go somewhere warm. Mm-hmm. Learned, Even now it's easier. I learned to dive in a quarry oh, yeah. just outside the M25, in minus five degrees, oh. so I did my paddy in a dry suit, well, and we had to crack the ice. Yeah. My next diving experience was with the Manta Trust in the Maldives. I can highly and recommend water. That's have you like been back water. in the quarry since? Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> no, but having learned to dive in Scotland, you can dive anywhere. Yeah. You can cope with the cold weather, the currents, the rough seas, etc. Anyway, we went to the Mediterranean, and that was where I really got into snorkeling. I was only probably 11, 12 years old at the time, if that, maybe even younger. Um, but that was a great place to slip on the mask and get out there. And I believe that good snorkelers become good divers. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go straight onto a bottle cylinder, you know, you maybe don't get the same time to be get, feel at home in the water. So I started there, but I also remember very distinctly reading Jacques Cousteau's Silent World. Now, Cousteau's Silent World, I think, was published in 57. And um, my father had these Reader's Digest condensed books. Do you remember uh, them? I do indeed. Well, they... they had a summary of the condensed version of the of the Silent World in there, and I probably read that when I was maybe nine or ten, you know. Uh-huh. And I remember just being really excited by the whole adventure of it, and it was it is just basically an adventure story, yeah. and diving sort of just sucked me into that. And I think then later on in the early early sixties mid sixties, Cousteau was on the television with his you know television series, and that pulled me in as well. So I guess what I'm saying is that here was a sport which, if you were good at it, you were also elegant at it. Yeah. It demanded a level of fitness, but it was also just exciting. You know, it's not. It's true to say that through the 60s, there were two great frontiers. We were going to the moon mm-hmm. and we were going underwater. We had more vehicles capable of taking people into the depths in the 60s than we do now. And there were some great records set there. Three people, Jim Cameron and, and Vescovo, the, uh, the Russian um, millionaire, or American millionaire, you might be. You know, they've been down to the Marianas Trench yeah. in the last five years. Well, no one had been to the Marianas Trench since 1960 when Don Walsh died there. So there was no way I was going to the moon, but you could take yourself into the other environment yeah. of underwater. And so as I went through school, I became... Interested in diving, certainly. And then when I decided to go to university, it was a case of I wanted to do science, but biology was the the least numerical science. It sure. was almost still a Cinderella science at that point, i.e. all descriptive. But we were just getting into the big picture. We were getting into ecology. You know, don't just look at the individual animals and the sea. Look at the whole picture and mm-hmm. how it works. So I went to Stirling University and, and did... A degree in biology, but specialising in marine biology. And there, it was there that I realised how, where my talents as a diver allowed me to, to work for scientists, you know, collecting their data, you know, fine buoyancy control, taking sure. samples, etc. And I also realised I wasn't really cut out to be a, a real scientist. I wanted more adventure. But also, like I say, back in those days, it was unusual to find a marine biologist who actually got wet. <laughs> I'm just gonna let that one hang there. Um, I get, I guess, weird question, but like, what was your twin doing at this time? Oh, my twin brother. He went to um, he went to Glasgow University and did aeronautical engineering. Awesome. So one of you was in space, up, and one of you was going into well, the I deep. Know, yeah, yeah. But Ron, Ron went to do aeronautical engineering, thinking um, that he he needed glasses to see, uh, you know, to see twenty twenty, uh-huh. and. Um, he thought that the the less than perfect vision was a barrier to going into flying, but it turns out it's not. To, it, it's a barrier if you're going into uh, Air Force or something like that, but yeah. for commercial flying it's not. So having graduated in aeronautical engineering, within about three years, he did some time at flight test department for BAC, but then he started to train as a commercial pilot. Awesome. So he did that. Um, so after university, after Stirling, mm. I read that you became a pearl hunter. <laughs> I was. I was a pearl diver. It's, some people take it, you know, the, the Scottish 
freshwater mussel, pearl mussel, mm -hmm. is now classed as a threatened species across Scotland. Okay. Um, How long has that been the case? Well, that was that that was brought in, I think, in the late 80s or so. It was brought in because there are still areas in many Scottish rivers where there are many, many shells. But the problem was that scientists were finding out that recruitment of smaller shells was not as high as it should be. Normally, if you can get into patches of a river where literally the saying for it was that the guy I worked with referred to the shells as being cassid. Uh -huh. Now, cassie stone is an old name for a cobblestone. And what he meant was that the shells are so thick, they're just sitting next to each other, sitting there on the bottom. Now, if you go in and clear a metre square area, take all the shells in it, you'll find that tucked in there between the big ones, there's small shells, maybe just the size of your thumbnail, ready to come up. Well, by the, the 90s, they were finding that those little ones weren't there anymore. And it's probably because of pollution of some kind, possibly runoff from the fields, mm -hmm. um, possibly because of the salt on the roads. The freshwater pearl mussel really didn't like the salt. For many, for several reasons, anyway, general degradation of the rivers, they were starting to go. But back in the early 70s, when I dived with Bill, Bill was the last full-time professional pearl fisherman in in UK. He had done it all his life. His father had done it almost all his life and his grandfather before that had done so. Right. And so what Bill knew, Bill knew lots of places in many, many rivers throughout Scotland and Ireland where there were not only shells, but there were shells with enough pearls in them that they were worth collecting. And that's the secret. You need to know to, where to go where the pearls are sufficiently dense enough. You could cut shells all day and not find a single pearl. Sure. But if you're going to turn it into a, into a job, you need to find two or three pearls on every dive. So were you just, what did he do? Did he sort of pull them open and look inside? And No, you couldn't do that. So to, properly, to properly see if there's a pearl inside, you, you have had to, to open the shell, yeah. right. But by knowing what kind of shells to look for, the shape of the, the lip, uh -huh. of the shell, you would massively increase your chances of there being a pearl inside it. Because right, when, yeah, when a pearl is inside, as it grows, it forms a kind of irritation. And that irritation results in a deformity in the shell. And sometimes it's just a little twist in the middle. Sometimes there's a ridge runs up towards the lip. And I was diving areas where, you know, there were almost acres of shells. And you would have been a complete waste of time and yeah. a waste of muscle to try and clear them all. Sure. So, he, so Bill taught me what shape of muscles to look for. And by doing that, I would just bring out the best of them. So we probably left, you know, we might be picking one in a thousand shells, you know, but it, it kept us in business. So I did that for a year with Bill and uh, it was fascinating, really, the whole business of finding them, Bill telling me about his life, his dad's life, and then following it all the way through to when we had the, the had the pearls, taking them into the jewellers, and then a bit of bargaining over the, over the selling of them. And Bill had the market... How much to, did a pearl cost back then? Well, pearls are usually sold by their weight. Okay. But they're also sold by their perfection, so to speak. Like a diamond, so, then, the same kind of thing. That kind of thing. You know, a diamond, you have to... You could really only get the weight of a diamond if you get somebody looking at it yeah. who can tell you how it's going to be cut. Well, the, the most perfect pearl would be a, a perfectly round ball 
that was a lovely luster, but not many of them were that shape. They'd be a little bit misformed or they'd have a brown bit on the side. So you needed a jeweler who could take those from you. The jeweler would cut them, you know, cut the pearl in half, maybe leave the brown bit and then just put it in a mount that just showed off the best of it. But you also needed, as Bill knew, one or two private clients, particularly farmers, for example, who would river was running through their, their ground and they'd been maybe over many years putting together a graded size necklace for their wife. Okay. And Bill would think, you know, he'd say, this one will fit in with so-and-so and you'd take it to him <laughs> and, you know, he would get more. Bill, Bill himself found the biggest, most perfect freshwater pearl um, in the Tay, I think in 1968. Uh -huh. This was a... This thing weighed 35 grain, which is, that's the pearl weight, and it was maybe about half an inch in diameter and an absolutely perfect ball. He took it into Cairn Cross Jeweler and they decided between them not to sell it but to use it as a sort of advertising thing. So this pearl sat in the, in the front um, in the front of shop, in the shop window of Cairn Cross for many years and wow. people would come in. Amazing. It was, it was cool. And this, so this, I'm guessing, is about the time when we go to the Red Sea. I, I worked with Bill for a year and then I went to the Red Sea for about six or seven months. Then I came back and um, ran a dive school in Jersey for a summer, which was good fun. And at the same time, during that summer, I read about the British Antarctic Survey and I applied to them for a job as a diver. Uh, I got an interview and I failed the interview. <laughs> um, I, remember, I remember the dive, the dive school was just coming to the end of the season, September, and two mm -hmm. letters fell through the, through the post. One of them from the British Antarctic Survey saying, sorry, you know, you've not been successful with your application. And the other one was a letter from the Red Sea people saying, would you like to come back out? We've got some money for a project that we need a hand with. So disappointed not to get the Antarctic, but happy to go back to the Red Sea. Yeah. So I went back to the Red Sea. Was the Red Sea a seasonal job then? No, not time? really. This no. was this was well. The best time in the Red Sea is is um, kind of May through to about August. Then after that, there tends to be quite a strong northerly breeze um, comes down, and so things get cooler and lumpier. But um, anyway, they wanted me to go out there, so I went out there, did the bits and pieces that they did, and worked through there until. The contract was almost finished and then February in came a telegram, Telex, from the British Antarctic Survey saying unexpected vacancy on Signy Island uh, for a diver for 18 months, do you want the job? Mm -hmm. So in the Red Sea I decided to go to the Antarctic. <laughs> so I came back to UK and spent a very hasty maybe month or so learning a bit about the British Antarctic Survey, going down there, working with them a little bit and then headed off down to South America. They flew me down to the bottom of South America. I got on the ship down there, didn't know anyone. Three days on the ship and I was landed on Signy. Got off at Signy. The ship was there for a night and then it left and we didn't see them again for nine months. So it was very much a baptism of fire getting to the yeah. Antarctic. And you'd obviously never been there before? No, never been there before. Didn't know anyone on base. Did you have the right kit? Like, did they give oh, you a list? No, no, like... no. They, they, there was a diving programme on Signy already. Diving okay. had been going on at Signy for about the previous seven or eight years. Sure. So they had all the equipment down there. I mean, is, is there not a risk of getting someone... I mean, obviously you failed at the first interview. <laughs> but is there a risk <laughs> of going, this person loves diving, they've dived a bit in Scotland, they've used to go for the pearls, they've gone to the Red Sea... I mean, I presume you probably hadn't dived in a in a dry no. suit at that point. Uh, we were diving with wetsuits. 
in <laughs> uterus. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We are hardy people. No, the reason that we died... What was the temperature of the water down there? Then? Minus 1.8 in the winter. In West. In the summer, it would rise to the dizzying heights of just over zero. But, um, no, let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> let me explain. Dry suits were really... Well, the good dry suits, they... they What's this name? Poseidon dry suits. Mm-hmm. Back in those days, they were costing six or seven hundred pounds. Yeah. Back in those days, way too expensive. The only other people who dived dry were in the Navy. So there was virtually no dry you diving amongst, amongst okay. scientific divers. So all the people who were down there had done all their training on wetsuits. Now, they weren't standard wetsuits. They were custom made for your size. They were 10 millimetres thick okay. neoprene with no nylon lining. So they were very stretchy and they would have long johns and then a jacket that you'd pull on over your head. No zips anywhere. So really they were almost precursors of semi-dry suits. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go in for a dive and you'd often come out and the big chunks of your body would you know, still be dry. Because we were often diving fairly close to the base and usually the diving wasn't deeper than 15 metres or so, we could go out, cut the hole, you know, if we were diving through the ice in the winter, cut the hole back to base, get changed, straight out, in the hole, back up, out again. And How long you, would you be under pump? Not long, half an hour? No, somewhere between, well, somewhere between half an hour and an hour. It okay. would depend what you were doing, how interesting it was, how much swimming around it was, etc. So, you know, there's no doubt that, and sometimes I did two or three dives a day, you know, you've no doubt you got cold, chilly, but... You know, it did. The big, the big thing with the Antarctic, I think, was, and I was there for one and a half years, and then I came back to UK, applied to go down again, mm-hmm. and went down for another one and a half years. But at the end of my one and a half years, the ship couldn't get in to to take us out because there was a lot of ice, unexpected ice. Uh-huh. So myself and six others who should have gone out at the end of summer. We got stuck for an extra winter. So I did, instead of one and a half years for my second contract, I did two and a half years okay. for my second contract. So we're talking, how far south are you? Like, how long is a daytime in the winter? Like, uh, well, do you get the sun at all? No, no, yes, we do. Sydney is the most northerly of the Antarctic bases. It just, okay. it sits technically just inside the Antarctic. It's just south of 60. But actually its position, which is at the top of the Weddell Sea, means that we had... Fairly mild summers, but in the winter it would we'd, we'd get the same kind of ice conditions as temperature mm-hmm. as you were getting five or six degrees further south. So the great thing about Sydney was that you know diving in the cold was fine, but also my job everyone on base was encouraged to help out with another job. Sure. And um, so I got a chance to ring birds, tag seals, you know, and we also had this wonderful system whereby. Sydney was a, quite a small island, about roughly triangular, and about three miles from north to south, about, about two and a half miles across uh-huh. the bottom apex. And the base was halfway up one side, but on each of the corners almost, there was a field hut. Now this was just simple little hut, two bunks, sometimes three, but mostly two bunks, and it was equipped with some food, primus stove, tilly lamp, what have you. And you could go down singly or in pairs. You could go down to these huts and spend one or two days off base without asking HQ. Sure. You know anything about it? So it's the BAC timeshare opportunity. (laughs) 
So it was just great. You could go down there and eat. There was big penguin colonies near each of them. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great chance to go out and, and experience the whole different seasons in the in the mm-hmm. Antarctic. We were also encouraged to go and explore. There was a much bigger island to the north called Coronation. And the point was that by the end of all that time in the Antarctic, I really knew how to handle myself mm-hmm. in the cold. I knew what kind of clothes I needed. I knew my own personal limits. I mean, in, you in your book, to... you say that your perfect temperature is minus 18 degrees centigrade. That's perfect, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> that's on a calm day, but you know, you go skiing in the Alps, uh-huh. and you know, with the sun out, you know, you'll feel quite warm, but it'll still be minus 12, 15 sure. in the shed. That's the kind of temperature that's perfect. The reason that that's good is because nothing melts, mm-hmm. everything's going to stays, you know, solid ice and things. So, Perfect for footwear. You don't need welly boots or anything like that. And it just feels really nice. It's not too cold that you begin to have problems with yourself or with the equipment. It's just everything feels clean and clear. And most of the time, you can't tell the difference between minus 18 and minus 38. Sure, until something falls off. Well, (laughs) or until the wind starts to blow. Sure. So, okay, you mentioned at the very beginning that your your father and five was a photographer. He was, yeah. So whilst you're here working with the Antarctic Survey, mm. do you have a camera with you? Were you interested I, in photography or was this is just No, again, again I, you know, I had a very modest camera the first time I went down, but, but when I was down there, I realised the potential. I realised how much I wanted to show people back home, mm-hmm. not just the animals, but the whole lifestyle of down south. So when I came back to the Antarctic between the two trips, I went and worked as a commercial driver. In Jersey, in Germany, and saved as much as I could, and then went to the Antarctic the second time with a decent set of cameras, you know, Nikon F2s, that kind of thing. With underwater casing. With an underwater housing, yeah. Now, you've got to remember that this is all pre digital. Yeah, yeah. So it's all film. So when you go underwater, you've got 36 pictures to take, and then when you come out, you've got to go to the dark room, process it, look at it, and then only then do you see what it's like. Now, that is bad enough with stills. But when you start shooting movie, as I did for one of my trips, you're shooting totally blind. One of the most interesting things I found about your book was you describing how you replaced the cassettes and the video cameras. You had to have a dark bag because oh, yeah. if they got exposed. <laughs> and, I mean, I've got so much respect for you and your kind. Um, <laughs> Me but, and the oldies. <laughs> but, like, even, like... For, for people who had to work with celluloid as opposed to digital, yeah. just the extra added layers of things, and obviously you didn't know any difference back yeah, then, yeah, but yeah, the no. extra things you had to cope with. Well, to some extent... Like knowing how much <laughs> film stock to take down, for example. Like. Well, that's right. It's not, it's not like you can put a bad roll through the camera again. Mm. Generally, and it's also expensive, you know, what yeah, people yeah. tend to forget was it cost about, about 20 to 25 minutes for a minute the time you bought it, developed it, made a print of it that you could see, it was about £25 a minute. Sure. So you had to be careful with it. Now, good wildlife films used to, in those days, would still shoot at about what you call 30 to 1. So you'd have, if you wanted to make a half-hour film, a half-hour film was three rolls of film, three 400-foot rolls of film. That lasted 30 minutes. So if you allowed 30 to 1, that would mean you were taking about 100 rolls of film down from which you would make your 30-minute film. You would throw away 29 thirtieths of it and you'd keep the key bits. Nowadays, you can shoot as much as you want, yeah. and, and you frequently do. You can shoot the hell out of things. Yeah. 
doesn't always make it better in my experience as an actor, that's for sure. We'll just go one more take. <laughs> I was shit on the first take, it won't get any better, I'm really sorry. I agree. <laughs> that's, that's shit. No, no, that, but you know, back in the filming days, you, you just had, you, you had to remember what you had shot yeah. and thinking, did I get the wides, did I get the close-ups? And then when you do a piece with David, I remember my first sync piece with David, I was working with a very experienced producer called Mike Salisbury, and he said, okay, Doug, I want you to come down off that ice cliff, come down, open up a little bit, find David, David will deliver his piece to camera and then I walk out of shot, you hold it, okay? So I said, okay, so I, so David, you ready? Yes, I'm good to go. It's quite a long way away. So down I came and he's watching where the camera is and just when I stop, he delivers his piece and then boom, and goes out. And um, Mike, the producer, he said, well, that sounded good to me. David, were you happy with that? Yep, I thought that was fine. Doug, what did you think? Well, I think so. Um, okay, cut, on to the next one. And I said, don't you want to do another as a backup? And he said, well, everybody thought they got it right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go for it. Hey, there's nothing better than doing a, take, uh, doing a scene in one take as an actor. It's the best thing. You're romantic. Great, you're perfect. That's right. Yeah. Um, narratively speaking, we've, we've missed a really important chunk of your life. Like, <laughs> at what point, I mean, you started off being, I mean, still are, a, just a, a self-employed yeah. cameraman. At what point were you deciding to make videos when you're down there? It sounds cliche, but I met David Attenborough. Um, He's got a lot to answer for that. <laughs> he has. He was just David in those days. You know, there was no ceremony about it. Um, it was at the end of my second contract, so it was after I'd spent two and a half years in the Antarctic. We it was the final summer, um, and we received a radio call from HMS Endurance, which was a navy ship that mm-hmm. used to go down there and wave the flag. So we're talking about I think February nineteen eighty one, okay. and it said we've got a BBC film crew on board. They would like to come onto your station. We are visiting Sydney for a couple of days to do some hydrography. We've got BBC film crew on board who would like to come and stay on your base to do some filming. So I can't remember at which point they said it's David Attenborough, but we of course said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. come on. Was he so, director general at this point? No, 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 he's, he's, he's making the second of his big series. He okay. was DG, well, he was never DG, I don't think. He okay. was a controller. Sure. He was a controller of BBC Two for, I think, about five years or six years between, it was when colour was brought in. But David also, he was responsible for commissioning that big series called Civilization, mm-hmm. And that was really successful. And on the basis of that, he said to himself, you know something, Wildlife deserves a series like this. Yeah. So he left the BBC and did Life on Earth as a freelance. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he pitched it and with his contacts. But he, he by that time, was no longer employed. Yeah, I don't think he was employed by the BBC. Oh, he's good, isn't he? Very clever. He knew how the system worked. Anyway, so he did that, huge success, and he was now filming his second one, uh-huh. Living Planet. So it turned out that um, he came in with a helicopter, and there was him, there was a producer called Ned Kelly, there was a cameraman, who had sound recorders called, called Dickie Bird, and there was a cameraman called Hugh Maynard. And uh, it fell to me to sort of move them around the island for the couple of days. We were only there for two days. But I could operate the boat and I knew where to take them because you were for best overall views and things like that. So anyway, I worked with them and I, two things, I saw what a good time they were having. I mean, they were such a lot of fun, those four. Now, in retrospect, 
it was really lucky to have them because I've worked with some people where they're all bitching each other. <laughs> and I thought, if I met this sort of crew, yeah, you've never done it. No way. But I thought, you know, I've spent all these winters with a small group of men. I know that I enjoy being in a small team, you know, and this seems perfect. Um, so I, I quizzed them about how the business worked, etc., etc. They were very generous with their information. And at that point, I was almost thinking of doing a book about. Signy through the seasons, you know, illustrated book with my experiences. But then, almost as soon as I met David, I thought, you know, if you really want to show what places like, do it on movie. You uh -huh. know, that's the way to do it. But I do remember, I think it was the producer said to me, we were chatting um, at the bar or somewhere during the thing. And I'd begun to talk about, you know, how does this business work? And he said, well, don't forget that what you have is unique knowledge, really. I don't think he even said that. What he basically said was, you know the thing, Doug, if I want to go to Africa, there's a couple of dozen people I can phone up about, mm -hmm. chimpanzees or elephants, and best time to go there. He said, but if I, if I want to come back to the Antarctic, I'll have to come to you, because yeah. I don't know anybody else who knows the, the animals as they do, diving, cold water, etc. So, so I, he was sort of hinting, if you do try to get into this business, play to your strengths, yeah. And so I did, and, and I basically I came back from the from the Antarctic, and I didn't really know much about getting into the business, but I then Bass offered me this overwintering with these emperor penguins um, down at a very different base where there was no diving. The nearest rock to Halley is about 120 miles away. Sure. It sits on an ice shelf, but they wanted a base commander for the winter. so Someone who liked the cold. So they offered it to yeah. me, and I went because Halley at that time was about um, 12 miles inland, that's where the base was, 12 miles across the ice shelf, there was a colony of emperor penguins. So I decided, in with both feet, bought myself a 16mm camera, contacted the BBC How and offered... How much was that for, back then? How much was a camera? Yeah. Oh, peanuts. Okay. I think, I, think I, got, I got two cameras and a tripod, it was a kind of job lot. Sure. It was being sold by um, by a company, about four or five hundred quid, okay. something like that. wasn't a lot. But, I mean, it was an absolute leap of faith. Oh, it's a hell of a risk. Like, well, it was I mad. guess you didn't even know if you had a sort of an eye for composition or well, anything. Well, I had an eye for a shot, but I had very naive in the sense of knowing how to get different shot sizes to make a sequence. Do you think you inherited your eye for a shot from your dad? No, I don't think so. I mean, his style of photography was extremely different. His his bread and butter, in a way, was he was a stringer. Um, as a news journalist, he, okay. would, he would do freelance news stuff. But his bread and butter often was uh, doing weddings on a Saturday. But he was just super organised. So know. what you're saying is a group of emperor penguins isn't much like a Scottish wedding? I have done one wedding <laughs> professionally and I, it's much more stressful than a polar bear or emperor penguins or anything like that. <laughs> the expectations of the thing being photographed are so much higher. It was scary when I did that. So if you're a thrill seeker, become a wedding photographer. Well, if you enjoy, you know, working with the stress. I mean, but again, it's slightly easier today with with them with the with the digital, where you can look at it and think, yeah, yeah. that's right. Shooting on still, on a move on film. Oof. So was your Emperor yeah. Penguin footage the first footage that you saw? It was the first commercial footage okay. that I shot. I, I before I went south, I wrote to I wrote to the producer that I knew Ned, and he said, well. 
great offer, but looking at your timings, my series will be put to bed before you're back. But I will send your letter around and it fell into the hands of producer who was about to start a series on birds and he said okay look here's some film this is what I want you know on the regs etc etc if you can bring me that back that's great so I shot what I could for him and showed him it when he got back and on the strength of that he said can you do some research for me on these are, these are other either other birds that I want in the Antarctic so I looked at them and very quickly I realised that a lot of what he wanted he could get if he sent the cameraman for four months, the whole breeding season, mm-hmm. back to Sydney, where I had spent three and a half years. So I explained all that to him and he said, that's interesting, um, because I can't afford to send my... I have a principal cameraman for this series, and I can't afford him from the point of view of the number of days he'd have to spend away, and I can't afford it because I want him to do too many other things. Mm-hmm. But would you like to do that four months for this rate? And I won't embarrass you by saying what that rate is, but it was about 20% of what he would have paid the other person. But he said to me, what is worth you thinking about is that if you do this, when this series comes out, half of the first programme will be yours. And that is a massively valuable thing to have at your stage in your career. So that's what I did. So you just went out as a, you weren't going back out with the BAS, you were just there as a photographer, or were you, that, were you doing that, double, that, double? That's fine, no, to... I, was, I was doubling up when I went to Halley, but when I went down to do the summer, you know, Bass said, okay, you can come on base as a camera person, and... So this is where you, this is where it all starts. Over the decades you've been a, a wildlife cameraman. Yeah, it's about 35 years. What do you think, here you go, what do you think you have witnessed that nobody else on this planet has ever witnessed? Mm. I've, I have been very fortunate to have a number of intimate encounters with mammals, mm. mammals in particular, because, you know, we are mammals and every polar bear, every killer whale, every mammal there is, has there as many character types as there are amongst humans. So meeting mammals on a one-to-one basis is always exciting because you're never quite sure how they're going to behave, but also the way that you behave is going to be crucial to how successful you are. You won't make friends if you're too bullshy or if you're too confident or what have you, but if you play your cards right, you can have an intimate experience. And the thing to remember with any mammal, with any animal, indeed whether it's a fish mammal, what have you, is that all those animals have got the option of walking away, mm-hmm. of sniffing or smelling you, not liking something about you, head away. So I probably have had several unique encounters because you get to know the animal, if you're lucky, you get to know it so well that it will do things in front of you or behave towards you in a way that it might not do to anyone else. Mm-hmm. So I can think of, for example, um, humpback whales. You know, I did a long humpback whale shoot in Tonga for planet Earth. And in that time, you can recognise, just like manta rays, you can recognise individual humpback whales. They throw their tail up. You get a look at the white dots and spots on their tail. You can pin down that one. And we got to know a very friendly female humpback with her calf. And it wasn't every day, but sometimes she would hang around this bay. And we would go and we'd check the bay out every, every couple of days. And she wasn't often there, but when she did get there, 
it was like she recognised us. We had a mm. really good boatman called Lolly. And Lolly didn't go in the water, but Lolly had that sense of feeling round about whales. So he would just cruise around slowly, not putting the boat in and out of gear, just steady revs. And I think the whale underneath recognised the sound of our boat because sure. it got to the stage where we would cruise around and this whale would appear out of nowhere and it would sit in front of the boat when we just let it idle. It would lie there and you could look down at the whale and it was just waiting for me to go in the water with it. And with any mammal or any, with, any, with any fish, what have you, with, with any animal, when you get an eye-to-eye contact with it, there is a massive amount goes between you and your subject. Non-verbal communication, call it what you want. Sometimes you have to avoid not looking at them. You know, we're sitting here in Ireland and you maybe saw the sheep outside on the road. Mm-hmm. Well, those sheep can be sitting on the road. If you walk through them, just gazing down at the ground, they'll just stay there two or three feet away. If on the other hand you're looking around, they'll be just, you know, gone. So I think in terms of, of you know, unique things that no one else has seen, I'm not sure if I could pin down something that I've seen, but I've got a feeling that there have been certain unique things that I and my subject have felt towards each other, which possibly, you know, no one else has. The most unique piece of behaviour mm. probably is... is um, Either, either polar bear swimming underwater um, in a very relaxed fashion, which was great, or the killer whales, um, you with know, the with the waves, yeah. producing the waves and washing off the thing. I mean, I'd never been filmed before properly. Um, it had only been seen on a handful of occasions. It had been a, a personal sort of quest of mine for 30 years because I first heard about that sort of behaviour when I was working in the Antarctic for bass. Um, and when we got it, it was... A great team, we were a small team, we had two of the best orca biologists in the world um, on board that ship and we saw it so often, and with two of us, Doug Anderson and myself, we saw it so often that we were able to put together a really strong sequence for it. So that was, that was wonderful. Is it often the case that you are hunting for a particular kind of behaviour? Almost always Almost we are hunting, yeah. You, you don't just sail off and see what you can get. Sometimes when you're out there, you might hear about something you hadn't heard of. For example, I think I think it's true that Blue Planet 2, uh, one of the big sequences in that was the Trevally jumping out of the water and catching the birds in flight. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the crew was there looking for something else and they sort of heard about that behaviour from someone who was there. Um, and they said, have you heard about the you know, the fish jumping out of the water around the next bay. And so they went around and, and saw it and got some of it that year and then went back the next year. But no, almost every... When you when you make a film, when you want to pitch a film, then you, you write it up um, as a series of sequences which should tell a story. And then you do a lot of research and you decide when is the best time to go, where is best to go, how many people. And as you do all that research, which is usually six months of research before you send anyone out that's when you find the new stories you decide what's the chances of getting them because all the easy stuff has been done so it's all a matter of finding new stories but then what's the chances of getting it and and generally I would say you work on a 20% chance 20% chance we'll give it a go but it might be you're totally unsuccessful is there anything on your bucket list? I don't well 
I don't really have a... No, I, th I think I've been very fortunate. I would like to spend more time with whales. Um, I would like to think I could go back to the Arctic and, and try with beluga or narwhals and all that. But the politics of... It's remarkable how, how much more complicated the world has become uh, over the time that I've been doing it. You Are you know, talking ethically? No, not so much ethically, just politically, really. Um, okay. And... and Different uh, permits are required, different people, departments are in charge of things. And I think a lot of these departments, uh, what have you, are quite understandably concerned about the number of people that want to get access to these places. And so they're more restricted, perhaps, than they used to be. Or if you get there, there's more people there trying to get to what you want. Sure. You know. So I, I consider one of the biggest things that I'm been lucky with was just like those mantas way back Pete and I for a few days with no one else around well I don't know if I think I suspect Meshna Reef isn't that much visiting but that's mostly because it's off the Sudanese coast sure. and the Sudanese coast is a bit more remote etc etc yeah. but as there are so many places now which are covered in people really um, and it's 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 a bit of a shame really um, in your book, you ask the question, you, 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 you write, this is you, um, I think it's insightful to see how camera people and directors respond to the question, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever filmed? It can often be interpreted as, how close did you get to that to your subject? So, mm. my question to you is, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever filmed? And what does that say about you? Well, I sometimes say that my drug of choice is adrenaline. Uh -huh. no, and there's no doubt that, that I do... I got into it partly for the adventure element of it and that's partly why I like to do a lot of subjects like polar bears. I mean polar bears are, are probably the most dangerous thing yeah. that I do um, and that's understandable but at the same time you get a great satisfaction out of being able to recognise the difference between polar bear coming at you out of curiosity and one coming at you which is going to be threatening. Mm -hmm. But then, more importantly, having the means to chase away that animal without causing it any damage. I have no respect for anyone who swims outside a cage with a great white shark if, out of shot, there are people with you know, power heads and, and stuff like that whereby they can, you know, may have to kill it. I have no respect for someone who wants to get close to a polar bear but has the means of shooting that bear if it gets, you know, too much. Uh -huh. um, that's nothing. I want to take on the animal on its own ground but recognise that it might get dangerous. So dealing with polar bears is probably potentially the most dangerous thing that I have. Um, I've been in the water with great white sharks and say cages, things like that. I've dealt with, whenever I do go um, around with, with polar bears in particular, I do like to have somebody with me who knows as much about them as I do because uh -huh. if they do come close, I want to be able to concentrate on the close-ups yeah. and let the decision as to when they're too close take it by someone else. But I'll keep filming right up to the, you know, the last second, so to speak. Um, probably the most dangerous thing, actually, was, as I said, I don't just do wildlife, I do expeditions. And... Um, I've been on Everest a couple of times. I haven't been to the top, but I know how narrow and thin the borderline is between things going okay and having a big accident. You know, when you're crossing those crevasse ladders on the Nepalese side up the Kumbu Icefall, which is the most deadly place on Everest. More people have been killed in the Kumbu Icefall than anywhere else. And you're going, I'm doing these ladders a couple of times, three times. Um, 
you know, that's, and, and you don't really, uh, if it goes, it goes. You know, there's danger that you can do something about it and there's danger where you just, for a while, you just put yourself in the lap of the gods. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, you know, more hairy than, than any sort of wildlife thing than I thought. So there are three questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Mm-hmm. First question is, if you could go for a walk or swim anywhere in the world right now, <laughs> where would you go? Gee, I'd go for a walk or a swim. It's funny, my, my fondest memories are sometimes of places, sometimes of the animals in those places, sometimes the people in those places, and sometimes the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. One of the odd things about filming is that you're often in a very tight group and you work that way for quite a long time, maybe the whole duration of a series. And then when that stops, almost never do those same people come together again. So it's like having a really tight family that just disappears off. So I've had some some great experiences with people. If, If I wanted to pick one particular one, I would probably go back... Well, one of them would be to go back with some mantas. I did a film a couple of years ago, um, which involved going to Indonesia. And we went to this wonderful dive place called Mazul. And at Mazul, there's a site called Magic Mountain, which is where the mantas are pretty much predictably. They come by and they come there to... It's a, it's a cleaning station. Mm-hmm. So the current runs across the top and the mantas will come in and then they'll sit against the current and they just lift themselves up, their heads slightly higher and sink down towards the reef and then these little moon rats come out and they pick off little bits of parasites on the underside of the manta and they'll hold position for a few seconds, maybe a minute, and then they peel off and come back around again. And again, they're big mantas and they're fairly accustomed to divers but the secret with mantas is to be underneath them guy taught me that yeah. if you're underneath them you know you can i think some of them even enjoy coming into your bubbles, the bubbles yeah. yeah they come in they, they you know, see the massaging above you and but that was great because that was another one where again selfishly there was just me in the water <laughs> the producer was up on top and I, I love being solo with the animals because then you know that it's only you who is responsible for the way the animal behaves. Sure. You know? So if they trust you, it's all down to you. If they piss off, then damn it, it's because of something I did wrong, not whoever's with me. So I really like it that way. So I would certainly choose, you know, to go back to Missoul, but I would also choose to go back to a polar bear shoot that I went. I'd take a walk. Um, we did a, a shoot on Concarl's land for planet Earth, where it was just myself and, and Jason, who is more than a field assistant, but we got the chance to go to this um, archipelago about 120 miles east of Svalbard, and we were the first camera crew to ever be allowed to go there because it's a protected area and it's a particularly good denning area for bears. So because the Norwegians don't want any disturbance to the bears, they, it's normally forbidden for camera people. But this particular year, something about it. they allowed me and Jason to go but we weren't allowed to have a snow machine so we had to walk around this particular valley looking for bears and at first I thought God, what pain in the arse you know no snow machine this is going to be really harder but mm-hmm. actually it was the best thing ever because it really brought you into contact with the environment yeah. in a way that you wouldn't do early. you learn to read the snow you learn to you learn to watch the weather coming around and some of the nights um 
by the time we, we'd finished, it was almost 24-hour daylight, but some of the early times when we were there, when you'd be coming back and the sun would be low on the horizon, it was maybe minus 35, 40, and you'd been out for as much of the day as you could, hadn't been successful looking for bears. But those walks were just, you know, you needed all your field craft, all your sensitivity to avoid getting frostbitten and stuff like that. But it was just so satisfying to take on what is potentially a you know deadly environment and feel at home in it. Mm. So I you know I would choose that as one of my walks. So let's have a swim with the mantas and then we'll Go walk the on the fence. polar wastes in the evening. I would suggest doing it with the mantas second so you can warm up nicely. <laughs> uh, question two: Who is your natural history hero? <laughs> my natural history hero actually is probably a producer called Ned Kelly. Because Ned, Ned was in that group of people who came ashore that day on Sydney. Uh-huh. He was really, he was, there was nothing holier than thou about it. He was, he was a nice bloke. It was him who passed my letter on to the person who was looking for Emperor Penguin footage. Ned was another expedition cameraman. He made a film about an ascent of uh, Choyoyu, which is, I think, is the third highest mountain in the world, okay. fifth highest mountain in the world. Ned was just, you know, an overall expedition-y type place, but he was so quiet and, and modest, and but at the same time supremely talented because he was certainly one of the senior producers on Life on Earth and on Living Planet. But he was also of the old guard. Wildlife farming now is a different beast from yeah. how it was when I started. Uh, it's more commercial, more kind of hard-nosed, a lot more bigger budget, massively more you know, riding on the success of this thing, massively more people running around the world trying to get the sequences, etc. Back in those days, it was a kind of gentler thing. You know, you worked, you, you got into the business in a very different way from how you would try to get in there now. And there was a generation of, of producers and to some extent camera people who there's not many of them left now. So we're talking about Ned, we're talking about Mike Salisbury, we're, you know, several other people, Hugh Miles on the camera front, that kind of thing. Um, so it was just, I think it's almost inevitable wherever you look in the world, to be honest, that if you look back 30, 40 years, it would be a rare person who said as far as the natural world is concerned that things are better now. Things were better then. Sure. The natural world generally has seen a lot of diminishment over the last 30 odd years. How do you see your industry changing as it moves forward then? If there's a new guard coming in, do they have greater responsibility above just photography? It becomes more about environmentalism? Or do you think that there's... Are they part of the problem even? Like, what, 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 is, what happens now? Well, I, I still think that um, it's often been said that the, the reason that climate change, for example, or it, biodiversity loss, for example, the reason that it has carried on for so long is because scientists are poor communicators at heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that is quite true. You know, I've interviewed scientists, I've read a lot of books, I've watched them being interviewed and it's remarkably easy to slip into jargon and you only need to have a word like environment or habitat and suddenly, or even scientists these days, and people just go, not for me, click, click and that's it. And I think to some extent, television can be criticised for that reason. It still hasn't got 
a way of getting the message out more and doing things differently than these big blockbuster series and then tagging a little bit on the end about what the problem is. I would like to see someone come up with the imagination of, of making a new kind of wildlife film that, that does mix the two in a better way but also has got the money to make a long tail you know to make a difference not just a here today and yeah. gone tomorrow but to actually you know put the money into an ongoing website into you know in just a into dif you know, different a different way of making films so i think that's a challenge that i would lay down is to, to we i mean they do the fantastic sequences that we see and they hd or the hd 4k television the pictures are absolutely voluptuous, they're beautiful, slow motion, you know, you can see right into them. I think that we just, there is a, another level beyond that to get a more meaningful message out there, but also to get more meaningful practices adopted. Would you suggest that's what Sir David Attenborough is doing now? He's become, his films have become a little bit more activistic. Well, I, you know, David, it's funny, I mean, David did a series fully 10, maybe more, 13 years ago, called The State of the Planet, which was a very honest appraisal of all the sort of things that, mm -hmm. you know, he's coming out with now. He's certainly become the, the person of choice to go to for statements and things like that. He's still quite apolitical, in yeah. a way. He still talks in generalities, in a way. He has become, however, the... I mean, him and Greta Thunberg are probably... You know the main mouthpieces for you know who they can get through to more people yeah. than, than anyone else can, and um, I sometimes wonder if David feels the weight on his shoulders that has been placed there. Um, I would suggest there's a worry of how much weight Greta therefore has to hold as someone who hasn't had a life and no, yes, yeah, no, I agree. I think both of them. I think it's a shame that that the television doesn't have doesn't have a younger biologist a little bit like Brian Cox Brian right. Cox is great on physics but take him anywhere apart from a telescope and he kind of <laughs> doesn't have the same charisma sure. I think it's a shame that there isn't a biological equivalent an environmental equivalent of Brian Cox younger than David different character who can you know has a different baggage is the wrong one but just who has yeah. a new face a fresh face you know to come into David does a great job and all the rest yeah. of that. I mean, he's a wonderful man, hugely generous, you know, hugely loved, etc., etc. But I think it would be good if we had another major speaker in there. As you say, Greta, still, I don't know, lots of emotion, but, I mean, she has a very simplistic message, but maybe that's what we want. Yeah. What, I, what concerns me, David, is that, or what I think about is that all the stuff that, all the issues that we have are because we're humans, and it's all very well to talk about we should be less materialistic, etc., etc. But from the very first early humans, the first guy who picked up a bird feather, stuck it in his head and said, this makes me the boss. That's why some people want Ferraris or stuff. That's the whole basis of the structure of society in which we live. And we definitely severely lost the environmental consciousness that we had between the mid-70s and the last five or ten years. 
you know, we all followed Reagan and Thatcher and market forces and all this sort of crap. And we totally took our eye off the environmental ball. Sure. And I could show you books or give you quotes. And you would think, God, that boy's got it right on, you know. And they were talking that way in the 1970s, yeah. you know, the last chance saloon, all this kind of stuff. How many last chances have we got? Uh, and I do fear that, that we're into some tipping points. Do, are you saying that because you've witnessed it? Because obviously climate change and global warming is one of the sort of longest running topics in yeah, the climate yeah, yeah, disaster. Yeah, yeah. And you've been witnessing it because you spent so much time in the polls. Yeah, well, I do think, you know, I, I do. I got to the, I went to the Arctic at the end of what I call the stable period, which is just when climate change was starting to kick in. And certainly, you know, since then, going back to the polls, both of them every year, you can see the differences in, in where the glaciers were and things like that. Mm. On the other hand, you can also see how many more whales, humpback whales, there are in the Antarctic and killer whales there are in the Antarctic than when I started. When I started, it was it was rare to see you know, a humpback whale, fairly rare to see a humpback whale down the peninsula. Now there are hundreds of them there. Is that because of the warmer temperatures or is it because we stopped hunting them? Or both? I think it's because, partly because we stopped hunting them, but partly because they were so hunted that a lot of the knowledge the populations was taken out. Sure. If you wipe out all the, most of the whales that went to the Antarctic, then all the ones that are left elsewhere don't know about the Antarctic, yeah. so they have to rediscover it. But once they find it, then they keep going back there and they hey take guys, their cars there. there's this there great place. There's this guy called Doug. He's really friendly. He doesn't make eye contact <laughs> with you until you're ready for it. And then we had this amazing sensual experience. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, I've been working, I worked with the Inuit a lot. And, uh -huh. and I worked with, you know, they, you know they, they did a bit of hunting. They used to hunt sometimes polar bears for commercial reasons. But they also would hunt belugas and narwhals for various reasons. And one thing they said to me was that, you know... The belugas come back every year and the narwhal come back. But we never hunt the first ones to arrive because they're the ones who you know, know the way. Go. No. <laughs> There's a wonderful chapter in your book called about the intelligence and, and knowledge of uh, uh, the Inuits. Oh, yeah. And a, yeah. and a shocking but quite powerful photo of, of the young boy with the mm. narwhal's head. Which yeah, is... well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I think there are reasons now for, for hunting, uh, you know, for cultural reasons. Mm -hmm. I think those are become slightly diluted because the fact is that it might still work for the, for the older people among it, but the younger people, they don't have that connection to the land. You don't and need I, to culturally kill a narwhal if you've got an iPhone. Well, I don't, I mean, it comes down to how many you take and what methods you use to uh -huh. take them. I mean, I think the Greenlanders are, are, you know, they tend to use much more traditional methods for their hunting, um, which is not the case in Canada. Uh, but, you know, we... Canada, the Canadian Arctic, anyway, a lot of it got its own independence. Back in 2000, they created this area called Nunavut. It's not a province, it's not a state, but it's a self-governing part of Canada, okay. um, which has hunting rights, basically, wildlife rights. And, you know, they, it's now in their hands what quotas they have for, for the various wildlife around the place. Final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I think I would bring stellar sea cows. Great! I have been waiting for someone to say <laughs> that for so long. Tell me well, and tell the audience why they're brilliant and why everyone should be saying it. Well, I mean, some of us are familiar with manatees mm -hmm. in, in Florida, these wonderful you know, vegetarian animals, which, 
you know, if you do want to experience a Mamelock close, try manatees because they're the only one I know where you go over there and you get actively encouraged to stroke them. Because you take a boat out early in the morning because they've been in their sanctuary area sleeping. You don't go into the sanctuary area, but they wake up and they come out on their way to their feeding grounds. Uh-huh. And many of them will stop by the diver and what they want is to get a good old rub and scratch. And it's just such an experience. Well, the Stellar Seeker was like, imagine a manatee, but 10 metres long. And slightly more bloated. Slightly more bloated. Well, you know, if you increase an animal's length, then you almost always increase its girth. So these were these things, and they were found basically up the, up the Alaskan, northern Canada um, waters. And they were only discovered, I'll make a guess, but in the sort of late 1600s, 1700s, something like that. And by the time, people wiped them out within about 40 years because they were so easy to catch. Well, they, they wanted to be stroked and, after the feeding time. Well, they were easy to catch and they were great, you know, yeah. for the sailors to live off. And we just took them out. And now there's none left. Yeah. And it would be such a shame. I had a friend who had a wonderful idea about, he wanted to make a half hour about manatees. And so he was going to do manatees in Florida. He was going to do dugongs, which are so closely related species. The sirenia. Exactly, the sirenia. But then, somewhere in it, in one sequence in the middle of it, he was going to get really good digital effects and make a stellar seeker and make a whole sequence as if this animal was still alive. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, at the end of the programme, say, remember that stellar seeker that was so fantastic? Well, it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that would have been a very powerful mm. extinction message to hand out. There's so many stories about how Sirenia are probably the uh, where the tales of mermaids start because of this odd interaction. <laughs> You'd have to be pretty pissed to look at a manatee. Have you met a sailor? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. No, it's um, yeah. No, that that you're right. That's where they, that's where it starts from. Doug, they're, they're great. They're great animals. Doug, I've got so many more questions I want to ask. That's um, all right. We'll do another one later. <laughs> well, I, well, the first thing I'm going to ask you once the microphone stops recording is about the time a walrus almost sucked your brains out. Oh, yeah. Well, but for all the listeners, they're going to have to buy your book and read about it instead. <laughs> um, so, yeah, amazing. Thank you very much indeed. That's all right. My pleasure. Thank you to Doug. Thank you to Guy, and as Guy said in the introduction, please do get involved with this World Man today on all social media platforms and help us raise awareness of this amazing animal. To that end, Doug has shared with me some amazing footage which he recorded of manta rays, and I've shared some footage that I recorded too, so head to the Trees of Crowd website, treesofcrowd.fm, and decide for yourself who you think should have the career behind the lens and who should stick to flouncing around in front of it. On the website, you'll also find my original interview with Guy and with other members of the Manta Trust out on Lamu Atoll, which we released last year. Right, that's all from me. So a very happy Manta Day to you all, and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, 